welcome to Pastors of the Roundtable. We hope you're doing well today. Thank you for joining us for another exciting, thrilling, deep dive episode into the world of Christian denominations with uh, three of your favorite people sitting around the table. Um, Pastor Tim Ikoangeli, Scott Slater, and I'm Spencer Snow. This is Pastors of the Roundtable. This is the Discipleship Podcast of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. It's brought to you by Together in Christ, the teaching ministry of MMBC in Monroe, Michigan. We encourage thoughtful discussion about the Christian faith and connect you to the people and the ministries of MMBC. So we've been walking through Christian denominations, just kind of really just touching upon them, mentioning them, kind of just... You know, just having a little discussion about each of them, we've covered, uh, we've looked at, you know, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, um, uh, Anglicanism, um, just, we've talked about various denominations, we talked about Baptists um, on the uh, last episode, and this week we're going to talk about Methodism, the Methodist denomination, as well as kind of throwing in underneath that um, a, a group of churches called the Holiness Tradition, and we would kind of, uh, uh, churches that would be within that tradition would be like uh, the Nazarene Church, or there's other churches that have even the word holiness in them um, that you would you would include underneath that. So the Methodism and the Holiness Tradition as well. Um, so that's what we want to talk about today. And um, yeah, what do you guys, where do you want to start? With Methodists. With the Methodist, no, be methodical. Uh, yeah, there should be a method to how we do this. <laughs> There's a method uh, to the madness. I've always known of Methodists. We we usually ask like, what do you think people think when they hear this or whatever? I I really would have nothing to say about Methodists. Right. I guess now what it would be is I view most Methodist churches as very liberal that I know. Like that's the way I would see them being. Um, But before that, you know, I think that seems to be like a more recent thing, I guess to me, but before that, I don't know what I would say. I would have always had a question about what, Mm -hmm. what do they, what do they do? I don't don't know. The church I became a Christian in, it, it was our church. And then a big parking lot, and literally on the other side of that parking lot was a Methodist church. Hmm. But I, I ne- we, our church never interacted with them. And so, like, I, I really don't know much about Methodist either. Hmm. Yeah, I don't have much interaction with, uh, with uh, Methodism. I mean, other than the fact that you, there, there are many Methodist churches, and you'll notice they're spaced out sometimes. Um, you know, like they're, they're they're similar to Baptist churches in some ways because there's there's an, there's a Methodist church every just so many miles it seems like even in our area in Monroe County, like you go just a few miles here or there that way, there is a Methodist church of some size, um, planted planted there, um, and so there's they have a, a far reaching um, influence here I think or at least in the past did in in America. Mm-hmm. Is our our hymnals pretty persuaded with? Methodist. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, we'll actually talk about that too, I oh, think. I'm this. sorry. No, that's a great lead-in. I do know that, like recently, like a Methodist denomination split mm-hmm. because like yes. there's, like what Tim said, the, you think of Methodists as being more liberal. Well, they were 
part I don't know all the right words to say, but they were part of the same denomination as like African. Yeah. The United Methodist, Methodist Church. Yeah, so the yeah. United like the Afri- Africa basically just split off. Right. And it's it's funny, like they're actually the conservative Methodists right. in Africa mm-hmm. as opposed to what we have here. Yeah, they're, they're the <clears throat> denom- the United Methodist Church is in the process of splitting and the larger group is staying with the conservatives, but the larger group is made up of a lot of Africans, and um, I'm assuming there's going to be some churches in the United States. I think I've heard a famous, a more well-known uh, Methodist seminary, Asbury Seminary in Kentucky, yeah. I believe is going to align more with the conservative side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so will the majority of Methodists in that denomination be African? I be- Well, I would assume in that new denomination, I, must, I could be wrong, but I would think probably yes. That's cool. But I think also that, yeah, I think that overall, the con- so it's ironic. In America, it's probably going to seem like most of them are going liberal. I would assume most American Methodist churches would probably stay in a more left-leaning, theologically speaking, not politically speaking, but theologically speaking uh, denomination. Whereas I think probably the bigger chunk, though, of the denomination, which is made up of worldwide, uh, and a lot of it in Africa, is going to go uh, conservative. So that's an interesting development um, taking place. Uh, uh, worldwide, and it's a good reminder too that uh, there's a lot of really solid Christians in Africa. Yeah, um, a lot of brothers and sisters that are actually holding the line uh, for the gospel and, and scriptural truth. Um, so Methodism, Methodists, it's kind of, and this is one of the things that's. Um, we live in the United States of America. Obviously, we were part of our, our founding is rooted in the British colonies. So many of the denominations that we experience in the United States of America are connected to uh, English speaking roots, right? So Methodism, like the Baptists, right? They come from mm-hmm. England. Anglicanism or the Episcopal Church comes from England. Presbyterians come from Scotland. Um, and similarly, Methodism is rooted in England originally, just like so many of these denominations uh, are. And actually, it comes around some famous uh, founding fathers, so to speak, of the Methodist movement, the Wesley brothers, Charles Wesley, uh, John Wesley. Uh, Charles is uh, more famous for writing the hymns. John Wesley um, was a famous preacher, um, organizer and such. And then, of course, George Whitfield, who was a very famous international preacher at the time, uh, preached in, in both uh, the British Isles, but also in uh, the American colonies, which were the colonies before uh, the American Revolution. And all of these guys were actually uh, ministers in the Church of England. So it's important for us to remember that they were not originally ordained as what we think of as Methodist ministers. They were ministers within the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the uh, what in America is called the Episcopal Church. And they started to preach, and they would preach and spread the gospel um, and such. But eventually, um, uh, they, they, would, they would come to the point where they would split away, and they formed their own uh, church organization. And Methodism became uh, very uh, fat, spread fast in the United States, particularly. Um, so here, I've got a little chart here on the handout that I've given you guys that you can see kind of uh, from John Wesley all the way to the modern day. Um, United Methodist Church, kind of just a little timeline there, um, how Methodism grew and expanded 
And right, we talk about how, especially with westward expansion, and this is how it's interesting how history in cult in society influences religious history. But it was particularly the Methodists and the Baptists that were able to take advantage of the westward expansion uh, into the into the West, which at the time was probably like Ohio and Indiana and um, and West that way. And the Baptists and the Methodists were able to spread their denominations um, uh, out west. And then eventually from Methodism, where we've got people like John and Charles Wesley and such like that, and, and uh, we also then eventually will have the idea of the holiness churches, which will come out of Methodism, and those are churches. Um, Does that include the Brethren? Uh, the Church of the, the Brethren. <clears throat> oh. 1800. Yeah, they eventually merged with the United Methodist Church, um, I believe. You're talking about the uh, United Brethren? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they would eventually merge it with the United Methodist Church okay. and become, yeah. And um, so from the Church of England, right, you have the Methodists. Then from the Methodists come like the holiness churches, so like the Nazarene Church and other churches like that. And then out of the holiness movement comes the Pentecostal tradition. So you kind of have a, a far-reaching influence that Methodism has uh, outside of even what we would call the Methodist churches, where they've in, they have some relationship of sorts for, to not only themselves, but then to these other holiness traditions, and then to uh, Pentecostalism, and and even into charismatic um, theology uh, as as well. So, <clears throat> any thoughts? As we're walking through this, no. I mean. I don't necessarily enjoy what I'm hearing yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I think... um, Theologically. We'll get into... That's what I mean. Yes, and we will get into why... What is the... uh, Does it mean he's bored? I'm not really enjoying this. (laughs) We structure this for your personal enjoyment. (laughs) Um, yeah. Okay. So maybe it would be helpful for us to simply start talking about, um, what Methodists believe. And then eventually it will come, I think it'll come more into, uh, we'll, we'll understand better, um, why they would influence and eventually trade. You could trace it into Pentecostalism. The last one we'll do is Pentecostalism and charismatics. Um, but let's, we'll talk a little bit about why the, why, why, these traces of why ideas have consequences and why it traces out that way. Mm-hmm. So first of all, about Methodists, typically uh, Methodists are evangelicals, but in the, uh, what we would call Arminian or Wesleyan uh, tradition. I am quoting here from a, uh, yeah, a Methodist himself, Dr. Thomas F. Uh, Tumblin. I think I gave you guys um, his interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe he teaches at Asbury uh, theological seminary. Yep. No, nope. I'm wrong. He's on this Dean of Beeson school of practical. Oh no. Yeah. At Asbury. Yeah. At, at Asbury, Asbury theological mm-hmm. seminary. So this is a guy who's a good guy. He is a, a respected guy. He's a, he's a, you know, a Methodist. So this is, this is his own words that he's telling me. He said this Methodists who embody Wesley original teachings, believe human beings can choose to love God. Whereas some Baptists, as I understand Baptist theology would lean towards God choosing who is saved and who isn't. The other difference would be around whether a person, saved person can lose her or his salvation. Some Baptists, as I understand, would lean towards 
quote, once saved, always saved, end quote, whereas traditional Methodists would say salvation can be lost since we have free will to disobey or not. So he was kind of distinguishing what Methodists would teach, in particular about salvation issues, in contrast to what he understands of some Baptists, what, um, uh, what, what, what we would believe. What do you think about that statement insofar as it goes, and, and how would we respond to um, particularly what he says about, um, you know, for instance, uh, a, a Christian can be saved but then lose his salvation? How would we respond to a Methodist who is coming from that perspective? Like he says a Baptist would. No. Okay. <laughs> nope. <laughs> no, I found it funny because that question you actually asked him were what were the agreements and disagreements, yeah. and yeah. he only shared disagreements. He didn't share any agreements. Oh, yeah. Um, which I would think I'm we sure have knows. agreements. Yes, yeah, yes, I'm, I'm yeah. sure we have yeah. agreements with yeah. them, probably on like the Trinity, Trinity. <laughs> uh, Christ deity, some, some, pretty big, For sure. some pretty big things that we would align with. For sure. Um. But yeah, I mean, I mean, that would, he hits the nail right on the head. That would be a big disagreement that we would have with Methodists and in serving with them and in being with them is when we share the gospel, we would share the gospel in a way that would guarantee, right? It would guarantee the person's salvation. We would assure them that the Bible teaches that, that if by grace through faith, you trust in Christ. Mm-hmm. He guarantees to hold you in his right hand forever. He's not going to let you go where I don't believe a Methodist could say that. It would be, they might say by grace through faith. Sure. You can trust in Christ, but you need to keep doing it and you need to prove it. And you mm-hmm. can then choose to not. Mm-hmm. And there's things that you need to keep doing in order to mm-hmm. keep in the hand of God. Right. So a, that's that's a big difference. Sure, they're earning it. We would say, "You're." I don't know if they would say it that way. Sure, but, uh, that's what that would be our argument. Like it seems like you're earning your salvation every day, or at least you're having to do something to keep it. Maybe yeah. you would say he saved you, but you have to maintain maintain it. it. Yeah, I mean, it would be hard to say that that's not what they're saying based on like his last statement, since like. Uh, it says salvation can be lost since we have free will to disobey or not. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that actual phrase, I mean, it makes it sound like, yeah, your salvation is coming by your obedience mm-hmm. in that sense. I don't know if theologically that's what they would say, but yeah. that's what that phrase sounds like. Sure, sure. And I, and I think that's where we want to be fair to, like, there are, are there are evangelical Arminians who would say, no, we don't mean that. We just mean that you can you can eventually probably refuse to stop. You can stop trusting in the grace of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that they would not think of faith as being meritorious. Um, I, again, you'd probably have to talk to an individual to figure out where they're coming from, but we would see concerns like that because ultimately though, there's also questions behind that about the nature of the problem of sin about how bad, again, we come back to that basic question of how, what is the problem? Because what the problem is, is going to influence what the solution has to be. If we are so lost and undone in original sin that only the grace of God breaking into our lives, him taking the initiative can save us. Well, then whenever he tells us that um, no one can take you from my hand, when Jesus says those words or that Paul says, 
he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Um, then we're trusting that salvation is primarily something, that is something that God does. Whereas these other traditions start placing more and more power and capability within man's will and our ability to choose or reject. And so therefore, you, uh, you, you believe, but then you can also reject and lose your salvation, your justified status. Yeah. And like you said, to be fair to them, they still, Methodists would still see that as a, that is God's grace yeah. because of what they believe in your note below about prevenient grace yeah. and how that functions in their theological system. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And that would be a, a big deal. It's the grace, the prevenient grace. I've got a quote here um, from the Lexham Glossary of Theology. They believe that the gr- pre- when we talk about prevenient grace, it's the grace of God that God extends to all people that enables them to respond to either accept or reject the gospel. So they would say that, yeah, we, we are we're dead in sins, but then God gives this universal grace to everybody that kind of like rehabilitates them halfway. I'm not good. They probably wouldn't like that terminology, right. but you understand what I'm saying? Well, they, it, 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 I mean, it would, sorry. <laughs> you may be standing. <laughs> no, the holiness is starting to come on here, right? <laughs> but what they would say is that it's it's almost like that's what frees you from your your enslavement to, so to your sinful nature to choose. Yeah. It gave you the ability right. to choose. He, he, it's kind of like your will is set free now to do be saved or not to be saved. Yeah. Whereas um, other Protestant theology would say, no, even that, like, um, but the, what, so what then happens is, is that the reason why you're saved and somebody else isn't is ultimately then because you decided to exercise your free will, whereas that other person didn't. Whereas uh, in Reformation theology, Lutheranism, traditional, like, you know, the particular, some Baptists in the past and and the Reformed tradition would say, no, it's because the Holy Spirit transformed your will and renewed it so that you automatically, you you willingly receive the gospel, but that is a special, uh, wonderful work of God's love and kindness and power to you. Um, to change your will um, um, to be saved. So, um, yeah, so that would be a big difference in our understanding of salvation right away. And, and Tim is sketching something right now. On, I'm just on listening. A, While I listen, I'm just kind of... Is this, is this like a... Doodling. Doodling, a little thing you do. Okay. <laughs> this is a weirdo. <laughs> He's still, he is still yet to hear anything to interest him. He's, man, <laughs> I'll tell you what. You know what? He's just mad his basketball game was canceled. I am mad about that. Yeah. I'm waiting for Spencer to bring a little more energy to this. <laughs> yeah. Excite, All right. Excite me All right, some. Look, All right. Let's talk about entire sanctification. Awesome. Here it comes. So, so this is Methodism and especially the holiness movement have emphasized this idea of entire, entire sanctification. Does this, Okay. Yes. Keep going. Sorry. Keep going. So the idea I have a question is, about this. The idea is is you're a Christian, you get saved, right? You're you're a believer now. But you're not completely sanctified where you should be. There is a second work of grace after not becoming a Christian, but a second work of grace which some would call, you know, you can attain a state of entire sanctification or Christian perfection where you can, it is possible to live above all known sin, all known sin in your uh, life. This is from the Confession of Faith of the Evangelical United Brethren Church, but they say this, 
we believe sanctification is the work of God's grace through the word and spirit. Um, And then they eventually say this entire sanctification is a state of perfect love, righteousness, and true holiness, which every regenerate believer may obtain by being delivered from the power of sin, by loving God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength, and by loving one's neighbor as oneself. Through faith in Jesus Christ, this gracious gift may be received in this life, both gradually and instantaneously, and should be sought earnestly by every child of God. We believe this experience does not deliver us from the infirmities, ignorance, and mistakes common to man, nor from the possibilities of further sin. The Christian must continue on guard against spiritual pride and seek to gain victory over every temptation to sin. He must respond wholly to the will of God so that sin will lose its power over him and the world, the flesh, and the devil are put under his feet. Thus he rules over these enemies with watchfulness through the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is this idea that you can you can reach some really higher level through a second crisis experience, some crisis or some instantaneous or maybe it's a gradual way but you can attain some level of entire sanctification or christian perfection in this life what would we say in response to that have you guys reached it yeah mine was instantaneous (laughs) i was about three (laughs) i'll talk to amanda about that (laughs) yeah my first question would be this i don't know if you know this answer but based on this uh Dr. Thomas Tumble in the interview you did yeah, with that guy. Yeah. He, he seems to maybe not believe that. I don't know. Yeah. Because you asked him what are five things you would want non-Methodists to know, and he said, he said uh, personal holiness naturally flows out of social holiness. Loving God always links others. What believers might tend toward one another spectrum. But he says somewhere, maturing in God's holy love is often messy. The goal is not sinless perfection. The goal is loving God more than wanting to disobey God. It's about mm-hmm. relationship rather than rules. And so I just wonder if he would agree with that. I mean, that's coming from a brethren, the brethren. If there's, I'm, I'm just wondering if there's different level. Like we're talking about Methodists, but there's also, you said the Holiness Church. There's other things that we're eventually. talking about eventually. Right. I'm just wondering if, um, if he would agree to that or if he would say something like, It's so rare that somebody gets that sinless perfection. We don't deny it. It's very rare. Mm -hmm. But it's not actually something I'm trying to obtain because I I don't think I'm going to. I I just wonder, Mm -hmm. to uh, to try to be fair to them, I don't know. I don't know what they'd say. But I've always struggled, again, with this. (laughs) When I was at a different church pastoring, before I became the pastor there, they had a guy who was brought in there by the interim pastor to teach about finances. I don't remember what all was, but I remember I would sit in sometimes on Sunday evening to listen to him. And I remember he told us that he had been sinless for like seven and a half years, (laughs) that he had not committed a sin in seven and a half years. And I remember at that exact moment thinking, I'm not listening to another word you say. (laughs) That's what crossed my mind. I was out. And I just don't know where scripturally they go to say this because the Apostle Paul talks about how he's the chief sinner. I am, not I <laughs> yeah, was. Yeah, I am. Right. I mean, we just see this with all of the people in the Bible. God never hides their sin. David. I mean, go to the. I mean, go to all these 
great fathers of our faith that we have, sinners, 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 mm-hmm. all of them, mm-hmm. sinners. And it was never really told to us to obtain this yeah. perfection. It was you're going to grow. It talks about the sufferings. I mean, it talks about all this. Yeah. <clears throat> the only person the Bible ever presents to be sinless is Christ. Right. right. That's it. Right. And he had to be to be our sacrifice, to be our savior. And it, that, that's what it feels. It, but it makes sense because I would say by them having to maintain their salvation, in a sense, they have to be their own savior. Did this? I mean, that's kind of what I would <clears throat> fall did, to. Did this doctrine originate with Wesley? Yeah, he seems to have been the guy that really pushed it. Um, it'd be interesting, John. Yeah, it, I, I should have clarified yeah, that, John. Yeah, um, it, it'd be interesting to me to see, like, where he wrote about this, or like what yeah. his exegetical evidence for it was. It's a good point. I'm trying to think of in my mind. I think there was a specific like, text I guess of scripture. What I mean by yeah. that is like, where did he go in the Bible to see this? Okay, let me see. Pull. I'm going to open my Bible. I think it's from First Thessalonians. Oh, let me read it here. Keep talking. Okay, no, here it is. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty-three and twenty-four. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So there's one text that you could see could be pulled if misunderstood. See, I would also see like maybe like Romans chapter 6. Talking about how like you are no longer a slave to sin. Right, right. And like there's an ongoing debate on what that means. Does mm-hmm. that mean that you should be able to resist everything? Right. You right. Know, I just, I think behind this and, um, I'm stealing this. Uh, there's a, there's a helpful article on the called models of sanctification on the gospel coalition, but they talk about these different types. But, um, one of the things they talk about with John Wesley, with his specific view of, of Christian perfectionism, um, it says this Wesley taught Christian perfection, which as he qualifies, does not refer to absolute sinless perfection. <clears throat> Christian perfection is a type of perfection that only Christians can experience as opposed to Adamic perfection, angelic perfection, or God's unique absolute perfection. The way Wesley qualifies Christian perfection hinges on how he, this is important, he narrowly defines sin as a voluntary transgression of a known law. He limits sin to only intentional sinful acts. Is this after salvation? Yes. So the question is, though, this is my question, though. He starts with a wrong definition of sin. He defines sin as a voluntary transgression of a known law. Therefore, he limits sin to only intentional sinful acts. To a known law that you know about. Of God's or man or... I'm assuming God's God's law. law. Because then I guess my pushback, yeah, would be, well... We should stop missions, stop telling people who don't know about God, about God, because we're damning them. Well, I'm assuming, yeah, and I would assume that he would probably reply and say, well, they know God's moral law written on their hearts, you know, throughout eternity, or, or written through, written on their hearts by creation. I don't know. I'm not saying, I'm not, he obviously didn't believe in universalism, like, right, right but I mean, uh, but what I'm saying is, is this is a different definition of sin, for us, sin is not primarily the individual voluntary acts I do. 
those are fruits of a sinful condition that I already have. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 15. The bigger problem you have is not that you do all these individual acts. The bigger problem you have is not what you do, it's who you are. That's what David says, in sin my mother conceived me. This is the doctrine of original sin again, which hits at a much deeper thing because we talked about, you know, uh, in, is it's easy to stop cussing. It's easy to stop drinking or stop doing this or that, but you can't change your heart of stone. Now, a person who's an unbeliever, they can stop all those external acts at some level, but to change your heart and the things that you delight in and who you are, your sinful nature, you can't do that. You really need a redeemer for that. So I think right away, one of the things I would notice, and I'm not saying that he would deny, I I don't want to put words in Wesley's mouth, but I do think if you're emphasizing, though, that sin is this, a voluntary transgression of a known law, and you're highlighting that it's intentional sinful acts, that is an inadequate view of sin. Therefore, your understanding of perfection is inadequate. Um, And so I think in a sense we're defining terms, not even about grace, but what is the problem wrong Mm -hmm. again. I mean, yeah. Um, so that, and I think that's one of the things you kind of see then is, is if we have an inadequate view of sin, we're going to have a lot more positive views about what we can accomplish, um, um, in this world. What is their view too on, I think we differ too on the, what happens because of sin. I would say because of sin, you're dead. Yeah. Dead. Yes. They have a different or spiritually. Yes. And it leads to physical death and eternal death. Yes. Yes. And they're, yeah, they would have to say something different. I mean, that's where the prevenient grace thing comes in. I guess yeah, where it's like, that's what I was gonna say. where it's like, yeah, God makes everybody alive though enough. I mean, that's almost, that's I mean, what, right. That's, that's what prevenient grace yeah, is. Like you're alive. You're kind of like a zombie. I know that's being, it, it, I'm not trying to be rude. It about more it, like but, puts you on neutral ground. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. You've been slightly resuscitated. Because I would say a dead man is dead. Yes. Lazarus had to be called forth. He had to be given yeah. life. He was dead. There was nothing that he right. could do. Uh, that's the way I pictured dead. Right. right. They, they seem to be defining that different. Right. Right. They would define it in their own way. Like mm-hmm. they would still, yeah, they would, uh, I don't want to use that phrase. They would still believe that is a historical reality. Mm-hmm. But what the, what Christ's death and resurrection accomplished was that step up. Like everybody was like that, but that's been solved through the crucifixion. That's part of uh, the grace of God to all mankind mm. everywhere. But that God's grace to all mankind everywhere doesn't result in their salvation. It only results in their ability to respond to respond to the call of salvation. That's mm-hmm. what they would say. Mm-hmm. So they would, I think, actually historically agree with the the understanding, yeah, mankind was dead, but when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, we are now able to make this choice. I'm not advocating yeah. for that, but that is that's what prevenient grace is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, good point, Scott. So, I mean that, and so eventually, what happens though is for at least for Wesley and such, and this is stealing again from this article from the Gospel Coalition. Christian perfection occurs at a point in time after you are already a Christian. Wesley labels this second work of grace as not only Christian perfection, but salvation from all sin, entire sanctification, perfect love, holiness, purity of intention, full salvation, second blessing, second rest, and dedicating all your life to God. 
And so you could see how this idea could really then flow into American uh, denominations, and it flows, as you can see, into the holiness movement. It flows in up. Somebody who eventually became a perfectionist was Charles Finney. Mm-hmm. He became he became he was a revivalist, and then he became a Christian perfectionist. And there there becomes this idea that after you're already a believer, there is a second level to attain, and that you need to reach for this, whatever this is. And again, if you're defining sin wrongly. And then you're going to have a wrong understanding of, of what the Christian life should look like. And then you're also going to be trying really hard to press people for a second level. And, but our understanding of salvation is that whenever you're saved by God's grace, you are given, you're given the whole enchilada right then and there. <laughs> You're given everything. I've heard about your burrito references. Yeah, see? There you go. You're given everything. Now, of course, you're going to gradually experience sanctification in your life, gradual sanctification. But that's much different than pressing people to get to a conversion or a, a uh, second blessing crisis moment, or even if it's a gradual uh, growth in, in perfectionism. I don't, think we're, I don't think Paul ever is encouraging people to think that they can live perfectly in this life before the resurrection from the dead. I don't think we ever see that. Like you said, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners right now, even after he's been an apostle for years. Um, and so and so it leads also then to this idea of the higher life. We can reach for the higher life. And you see this kind of theology in different forms where, yeah, you're a Christian, but there's something more for you now. There's a second level that you can take this to if you're really serious, you don't want to live on this lower plane anymore. Yeah, I just, I just feel like being in a faith like that is so t- would be so tiresome. You know, Jesus says, "Come to me, all you labor heavy laden, right? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, learn from me." It just feels like this is saying something opposite. Yeah. It's almost like Jesus is saying, yeah, that I just meant that for salvation. But after that, get ready. You got to buckle up, man. Right. right. You got a lot to do if you want to right. attain what we really want you to do. I'm just kind of giving you the nudge here. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I just don't think that's consistent with the, with the New Testament. And I, I just, I can't imagine how tiring that must be. I mean, it'd be an easy way to preach. <laughs> do this, do, do, do. I mean, that'd be a pretty easy sermon to do all the time do 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 and but i just i would never feel like i was able to do enough i would i would constantly be questioning my my salvation i'd constantly be questioning my faith if i really loved god i keep sinning i there's no way then i can be i'm a christian because Mm -hmm. i it's i mean even my my intentions have to be perfect Oh my gosh! I mean, I'm, right. I'm doing the right thing, but I know deep right. down my intention isn't always right. the best. Right. It would be it would be so tiring. Yeah, I would think. I I mean, this guy. To be fair, this professor that we keep referencing, yeah. he says he's grew up Methodist. He's always found it as a nurturing, loving mm-hmm. place. Right. To know the Lord, they talk about right. doing this in groups and small groups together to push each other on and to encourage each other. I just I just feel like the theology leads to such a tiring life. Right. And I don't know how on the ground this idea of right. entire sanctification is found mm-hmm. in 
you know, for instance, like a United Methodist Church. Right. I don't know that. I'm not yeah. there. I no, do know no. at least that John Wesley had this idea. Now, how much that's, how pervasive that is yeah. today, I don't know. And that may be different on yeah. the ground. But this is prefaced off a conversation that we had actually before we recorded this. But I wonder if, like, the reason that John Wesley was thinking this way was because of the religious environment that he was a part of at the time when he lived that was like where as my I understood it when I was learning about this was that people in the church were generally not interested in living out their faith it faithfully because there are commands in scripture that we are to pursue holiness we are to repent of sin and I just wonder if that's maybe his thinking about this is trying to respond to that but as we are identifying now, probably in a, a wrong way completely. Right. I don't know. Like, do you think that's part of the historical yeah. reason maybe he would be thinking this way? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he did start. They were a part of what they called the Holy Club <clears throat> um, at Oxford. There was a group of people, and they were Methodists because they they had their methods, and they did stuff together. And um, But I think this is a, a tendency that we have to be aware of in church history in general is that you see um, the, the, the problem, right? So there could be a problem, right, where it could be <clears throat> nominal Christianity theoretically, right? There are people yeah. who uh, say they're Christians, but their lives do not reflect that um, or any number of things. One of the tendencies can be, well, we need to ramp up the law here. And that can be one way to think about the solution is we need, we need to ramp up what they need to do. And so then ramp up this idea of entire sanctification. No, you can do it. And, and you should, and, and all these things you see that in, in history. Um, but actually the, and, and you see that even with the gospel with Paul, because Paul was facing people, at least in, in Galatians, right? They thought they could add Jesus on to their legal religion and then go back to the law. And the, and the ironic thing is, is that that doesn't actually work. It actually, we have to trust the gospel to do its work because the gospel actually will bear the fruit that we can't accomplish. But, so we have to be very careful on the one hand of saying it doesn't matter how you live because that could be another problem. On the other hand... Um, of the the moralism that can that can yeah. come from from something like this. Yeah, I was just thinking. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that balance. Yeah, you're right. Is hard to strike because you have also in Romans, are we to continue in sin that grace sure. may abound? No. So yeah, there's this balance. Right. I was just wondering mm-hmm. if you know the thought that ruled the day in John Wesley's environment and in the church that he was in was this idea of no, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to live out your faith in any real way. Just, right. just believe it and in, in theory, but it doesn't actually change the way you live. Right. Well, and since you kind of face this um, at the Reformation where Erasmus, right, they had, you have two different guys with two different temperaments. You have Martin Luther and you have Erasmus. Erasmus is this guy who's a really smart guy and he's a very intelligent scholar in the Roman Catholic Church, sees there's problems in the Roman Catholic Church. His solution is primarily one of moral transformation. Luther looks at the problems in the Catholic Church and says, no, there's a much bigger misunderstanding of the gospel here at work. And so 
Whereas Erasmus was content with just moral transformation. Luther was saying, no, there's a radical misunderstanding of, first of all, again, it's interesting. Luther found a much deeper problem with man's sin Mm -hmm. in the original sin idea of hammering the fact that, no, the problem is much worse than we could ever think, but then the gospel solution is so much better. And then that will then bear fruit in a changed life of thankfulness Mm. for God's grace. So you see it at the Reformation time, and I think you see this same. It's it's a ten, and it's it's honestly a, a real alluring prospect to go and you see people who are not living maybe according to the the calling that they claim to have in Christ, and um, the solution. It's interesting. The the problem can be is that we don't even get to the point right. What you were saying in Romans six, where Paul even has to address the problem. Well, should we just keep sinning? Sometimes the problem is is that you have Christian churches that don't even get to that point where they're even that no one's asking that question because the law is so clearly preached to them over and over and over they don't really understand grace to even get to the point. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. So, but I think also when you think about second blessing this whole idea though of a second experience, the second level, you can see then how it would lead to not only in holiness churches where we're trying who were bringing this back again, this idea of of, uh, of uh, reaching for entire sanctification. But then you could see how this would then lead to Pentecostalism because Pentecostalism additionally says there's a second level, a second crisis experience you need to have. But now we know the spirit baptism comes to you because you visibly speak in tongues. So you can see this line of thought I'm not saying John Wesley was a Pentecostal, but I'm just saying you could see, you could trace some of the line, the the line of thinking and how it could eventually lead to um, Pentecostalism. If you think that you need this second convert, this second experience of grace, you could see why it would eventually lead to um, uh, Pentecostalism in, in various sorts. So before we wrap up, um, one thing to note, there's been a lot of Methodist hymn writers um, Charles Wesley was really good at it. Wrote a ton, I believe. I think I said over six thousand hymns. That's crazy. Yes, yeah, he did fifty six volumes in fifty three years. <laughs> yeah, mm. he was. He was. It's a lot to say. Yeah, that's a lot to say. <laughs> so um, Fanny Crosby, um, <laughs> right? Uh, who wrote like "Blessed Assurance," uh, "To God Be the Glory," all those songs. Um, uh, so they were great hymn writers. They've they've contributed a lot to hymnals that we even sing today. Yeah. Um, and then also, we need to give Methodism its kudos. They have emphasized evangelism um, throughout their tradition. We see like George Whitfield going around and preaching. So and John Wesley and um, so they have had an evangelical, evangelistic impulse, concern for the souls of others. And we should point out too, Charles Spurgeon was saved in a Methodist church. Whenever he visited a Methodist chapel, um, he he went and heard the gospel preached. And so we're not saying these people don't preach the gospel. Um, um, we're not saying that, but we are saying that while we have theological differences, we're grateful that they have uh, taken the gospel to many people. And, you know, like, for instance, we have many brothers in Africa who are conservative Methodist Christians who really love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not trying to deny that um, either. Um, so, yeah. I think uh, Bill Gaither's Nazarene. Yeah, I think you're right. It was kind of or Church of God, maybe. No, I believe Nazarene, which goes from this line. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty confident it's Nazarene, mm-hmm. which goes from this line, right? Another, yeah, yeah. Another writer many people sure. would know, sure. listen to. Sure. Um, 
But again, I think you need to know that when you know their songs, right? You need right. to know where they're coming from and what they what they could be teaching. Because again, if the point of singing is to continue to teach each other the truths of the word, you need to make sure that it's what you are believing. Correct. And so we just have to be discerning. Be discerning with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I tend to know a lot of Nazarene. Uh, church members around here more so than Methodists I, I feel like I, at least in our area here which again uh, you said falls from this kind of mm-hmm. down the line it does yeah. down the line a mm-hmm. little bit mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully it's helpful to know how to have a conversation and sure whatever. yeah yep okay all right well if there's nothing else we'll let you guys go um, thank you for listening uh, to this we hope it's been entirely uh, good to listen to. Hope you've been as entertained as Tim has been. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Tim's going to come up with the next set of topics or something to do. This is great. I think that's a good idea. What is? What I think he needs come, to. What is? What do you series. think he needs to do? I've led a series. You've led a series. Yeah. What do you think he it's should Tim's do? Turn. I don't know. I'm going to let him in with all of the gifts that he told us about him right. having this that's morning. That's a good point. He will find something. I lead a series every Sunday morning. Oh, boy. <laughs> every single But Sunday like you said, morning. like you said, that's not a weight on your shoulders. It's not. Right? It's, it's not a weight. Word. It's a priest word. Wow. I don't have to come up with something like you guys do in here all the time. I, I think your sermon on Sunday was great. Thanks. Um, okay. I'll think of a topic. I don't know what it'll be. Foods in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Cooking with Tim. Cooking with Tim. <laughs> Here's how God made manna. <laughs> I don't know what more you guys want from me. What What am I not doing? I mean, the you, way told us sitting? you told us about all these gifts that you have this Is it morning? the way I'm like sitting? Learn. That was in a staff meeting, <laughs> of which I was being made fun of there as well. <laughs> it just continues. That's all right. I can handle it. I could share a lot of things, but... Yeah. Okay. Well, I, but it. again, think if you guys it. could tell me what I need to do better, I <laughs> I will. But you are the expert on this, Spencer. You spent time studying it. I have not spent a lot of time studying the Methodist Church and a lot of history, and so I listen to you. And as I think of things, I try to ask. Yeah. I try to be fair. I try to read, but I also don't want to be. I'm afraid sometimes to share because I don't want to be rude to that denomination. Sure. I don't want it to come across as rude when yeah. it's probably just pure ignorance. True. Mm-hmm. But you guys don't mind doing that, so. <laughs> no. No. Actually, like your, th- like your thought there actually goes a little bit in hand of something I was thinking of earlier, that um, a lot of the people in some of these denominations we would call, I think, brothers, and that we would agree with a lot of the things they believe, but we would say that we think that they're inconsistent. Or that, like, a part of what they believe theologically, we don't understand how they get there scripturally, right? Did you think that's a fair way mm-hmm. to describe that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I try to think, yeah. There's definitely, like, the umbrella of I believe they're brothers and sisters. And then I think the next umbrella for me would be would I be able to serve with them Yeah, on a mission trip? Sure. And that's where I often wonder. I, I can be a little more lenient. Could I serve with a Methodist on a mission trip? Probably before I could a Church of Christ, or depends on if they're a liberal Methodist or a conservative. Well, that yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm good, trying good to point, good point. yeah, I'm trying to say specific more the conservative side, you know. Yeah, yeah. but um, 
you know, there would be some things I would be worried about, like we're talking about, um, saying someone's going to lose their salvation. That's going to be something very different than what I'm saying on this mission trip Yeah, right. to people. Right. Right. So how comfortable can I deal with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just stuff. That's questions that really do need to be answered, um, that the church, I think, would have to answer. Yeah. Uh, what's your comfort level with that? Could I stand with Methodists uh, in the community to fight against trafficking? Sure. 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 Yeah, I could, you know, or some other thing. Sure. Yeah, I, I I could stand with them before other denominations yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, but there's still differences that we're just trying to bring out and kind of talk sure. about. But I, I do worry sometimes that it comes back as us being mean and we don't, we're yeah. not trying to do that. Yeah, that's why I said that. It, yeah. And I, yeah, you said it too. Yeah. That's it. So. All right, all right. We're good. Okay, all right. Well, we'll go ahead and do the little music here. And um, thanks for listening. Take care.